Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. The nation of all the Gauls is extremely devoted to superstitious rites, and on that account, they who are troubled with unusually severe diseases, and they who are engaged in battles and dangers, either sacrifice men as victims or vow that they will sacrifice them, and employ the Druids as the performers of those sacrifices, because they think that unless the life of a man be offered for the life of a man, the mind of the immortal gods cannot be rendered propitious and they have sacrifices of that kind ordained for national purposes. Others have figures of vast size, the limbs of which are woven out of twigs they fill with living men, which being set on fire, the men perish enveloped in the flames. They consider that the oblation of such as have been taken in theft or in robbery or any other offense is more acceptable to the immortal gods, but when a supply of that class is wanting... They have recourse to the oblation of even the innocent. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And that is from The Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar, Book 6, Chapter 16, translated by W.A. McDevitt and W.S. Bone, though with a couple of little substitutions of my own for clarity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so what are we talking about there? That, that That is the ritual that has come to be known as the Wicker Man, though yes. you might know it better from the movie than from the works of Julius Caesar. Or perhaps from the new Radiohead music video for Burn the Witch, which just came out, which actually came out after we had already decided on this episode. So yeah. there's some wonderful uh, synchronicity going on there. Um, but, the, but the music video to basically depicts some of the key moments in the classic uh, film The Wicker Man. Uh, in which this uh, little um, pagan community uh, out in the middle of nowhere, I think on an island, correct? Yeah, it's an island mm-hmm. off the western coast of Scotland, and it's a little, it's a pagan community run by a jolly gentleman pagan played by Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee in one of his jolliest great. roles. Yeah, yeah. Like he's singing, he's dancing around. You don't see it. You don't see enough of that from his uh, filmography. So yeah, if you haven't seen The Wicker Man, nineteen seventy three, it's a horror cult classic. Mm-hmm. You, you should check it out. It's very weird and very good and and very. Uh, should we say, yeah, very good, but also kind of silly yeah, and in surreal, a wonderful yeah. way. Yeah, I mean, there's also there's a hand of glory in it. We don't have yeah. enough. The hand of glory is such a bizarre item of, of folklore mythology. This this dead man, this dead criminal's hand with, with like candled fingers that that causes everyone to just become, in, you know, immobile and is used by by thieves and robbers in their yeah. in their mischief. Like that's such a, a wonderfully absurd and hideous idea. Uh, I'm I'm surprised we don't see it more often. Yeah, and so it also, of course, has animal masks and human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So, so we are going to be talking about human sacrifice today, and actually a very specific kind of human sacrifice. But one thing I was wondering when I was reading Julius Caesar's account of the Wicker Man, you know, putting all these people in basically a, a human figure woven like a basket out of out of willow twigs, mm-hmm. and then burning them alive. Did the Gallic Celts really do this? This would be he, he would be talking about the Celtic peoples occupying the region sort of now known as France. Um, and they, they of course, were Caesar's enemies. It's kind of hard to say whether or not we can trust Caesar's word on this. Uh, obviously, Julius Caesar is 
describing the culture of his enemies and the victims right. of his conquest. So he's obviously not the most sympathetic or unbiased anthropologist in this sense. Right. He's coming from the standpoint of a of of, of an aggressor from a different culture that sees itself as, as superior in just about every form. Yeah, he did. It was definitely uh, not not just that he saw Roman culture as superior, but a lot of this was written specifically to show how superior right. Roman culture was. Like the Romans were interested in portraying their enemies as barbaric and uncivilized. And one of the huge primary signifiers of barbarity for them was the practice of human sacrifice. Uh, also, in addition, I couldn't find any independent evidence of of anything like the Wicker Man ritual taking place. So who knows if anything like this actually happened? It, it could be just a bunch of slander from the Romans' point of view. Spoken like a man who is foreshadowing his own death in a giant flaming Wicker Man. <laughs> right. I'm in denial. That's exactly what it is. I just, it can't be true. No, he made it all up. But then again, it's not like it's out of the question. Because when you wade into the shadows of ancient history, and especially prehistory, I think pretty much no matter what corner of Earth you're looking at, you're likely to find traces of human sacrifice. Like, you, you could be like Julius Caesar, the Romans, and say, oh, that's what those other people over there do. But if you go back far enough, it looks like we find traces of human sacrifice all over the place. It's not what those other people over there do. It's what we did. It's what everybody seemed to do. Yeah. And it's one of the yeah. you look back in just about any culture. You, you do find some evidence of this. And on one hand, we look back at these ancient people and you think, well, they were different than us. They were. Uh, they, they were, you know, they were a primitive people. They lived with a more cyclical mindset and like the individuality just had, wasn't quite the same. But then on the other hand, like we can't distance ourselves too much from them. Like the human experience in many ways is still going to be the same. Right. And death is still the same. Um, no matter how, you know, mythic its wrappings. Yeah. I mean, you can't just let your, uh, sort of urban ethnocentrism take over. Right. Uh, and, and imagine how, oh, how different we are than those uncivilized savages out there. Especially, for example, coming back to Julius Caesar, the fact that the, the Romans probably practiced human sacrifice. In right. fact, we know that they did not that long before Caesar, maybe just a couple of centuries before, especially if you count the gladiatorial games, which, I mean, come on, you know, fighters <laughs> yeah. pledge themselves to a god and then fight to the death. That sounds kind of like human sacrifice to me. Yeah, and as we'll discuss in this episode several different t- points here, there, there's, there's human sacrifice and then there's human sacrifice and then there are things that, that, that fill the role of human sacrifice in lethal forms, non-lethal forms, symbolic forms, and, uh, in surrogate forms. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And, and in a lot of cases, I think in our culture, we can find relics and, and ritual traces and residue of human sacrifice even when that sacrifice is no longer performed. One good example, I think, would be looking to ancient Rome. You, you know about this festival of the Argei? I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's A-R-G-E-I. I was not familiar with this, no. I, I wasn't either until we were doing the reading uh, before this episode. I thought this was really interesting. So in this festival, you'd have twice a year in the springtime in Rome, a, bun- a big procession would go through the city, and they'd stop at all these stations. It would be mm-hmm. festivals, almost like you know, Stations of the Cross or something like a, like a processional where you go to different places and you'd pick up things at these places and what they were picking up were these 
human-shaped effigies bound together out of rushes, you know, bull mm-hmm. rushes like cattails. They were rush dummies. Uh, and they'd carry the rush dummies to a bridge in Rome over the Tiber River, and then they'd dump them into the river. Huh. And the Roman historians and all the people at the time, they couldn't remember why anybody did this. Huh. They couldn't, they didn't know where the ritual came from. They didn't know what it meant, what it was supposed to be about. Uh, but many people, ancient and modern, have kind of speculated, wow, I wonder if those rush dummies weren't dummies originally. Like, is this, huh. is this a converted ritual of human sacrifice that has been tamed and domesticated by substituting effigies for real people? Yeah, it, this example did remind me of something from my childhood. Um, I spent I spent a couple of years of my childhood in Newfoundland, Canada, and there they had a tradition known as as bonfire night, where you everyone would get together and you just have a big bonfire. That sounds great. Yeah, but it but it apparently my understanding is that this was essentially Guy Fox Day. Oh, um, where you know across the ocean you were burning effigies of Guy Fox, the of course the the traitor, the the, the gunpowder plot. Um, yeah, what year was that? He tried to blow up Parliament. There's a rhyme, isn't there? I'm supposed to remember a rhyme. I don't remember. Remember, the year. remember the fifth of November. Oh, that doesn't tell you the year. Doesn't tell me the year. Well, anyway, yeah. so Guy Fox tried <laughs> to blow up Parliament, right? Right. So he's burned in effigy for his crime, which, uh, as we'll discuss, I mean, there's certainly a, a symbolic human sacrifice in play there. But uh, as the tradition crosses the ocean, it uh, like the geographical distance, the uh, as well as the uh, as the the, the temporal distance just completely changes the practice until it's just this, hey, let's get together and have this big bonfire. Yeah, you can't even remember why you're supposed to do it. Yeah. Yeah. We're celebrating the burning of the wood. I don't think <laughs> the festival of chemistry. Yeah, but it does make me wonder if that Roman tradition is, is a similar situation. Yeah, did were these once live people thrown over the bridge? And then after that, were they symbolic individuals that represented... Enemies, yeah, or you know, it could just be that it remained fun after it no longer had significance, right? You know, right. people like just enjoy having a bonfire. They just enjoy making some rush dummies and throwing them into the water. Yeah, any excuse to sit around and craft, right? Exactly. Okay, so we are going to be focusing on a specific kind of human sacrifice today, uh, and we we wanted to get into the one of the weirdest examples of it, which is ritual regicide, the the symbolic or ritual slaughter of a king or divine. Leader, mm-hmm. but before we get to that, I think we should just go go over some of the basics of what the profile of human sacrifice is on planet Earth. Like, how common and how widespread was the practice of human sacrifice in prehistory in the ancient world? Yeah, well, pretty widespread, and you're basically you can you can pretty much expect to find a supernatural element in any of these. Obviously, it's tied into 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 old beliefs involving deities and appeasing the deities. Yeah, or, or I think for the purpose of this episode, let me know if you disagree. But I think we should go with the the broad definition offered, sort of by the uh, the Roman interpretation of human sacrifice, which is any homicide for magical purposes. Yes. And I think that's a very good definition to move forward with. So there are different modes of human sacrifice underneath that that tent. Now, one of the oldest you're going to find, and this is like more or less literal sacrifice, is the mass sacrifice of a dead leader's um, uh, uh, courtiers, followers, uh, to accompany them into the afterlife. Oh, like the pharaohs, right? Exactly. Yeah, this is the old trope of like, oh, the king's dead. You were his best friend. You were his lover, his mistress, his queen, his cat. 
whatever. Don't um, want him to be lonely in the next yeah, world. Yeah, don't want him to be lonely. Do the right thing. Go with him. And, and so in, in that, that's something that's worth noting, too, is that de- depending on the account or the lack of, of an account in many cases, you have to ask, well, to what extent is this a self-sacrifice or, a, you know, a, a homicide? But... Um, you know, it dates back at least 5,000 years in agricultural societies in Europe. We see evidence of this with uh, the royal tombs of ancient Mesopotamia from, uh, you know, 3500 BCE, the tombs of the first dynasty of Egyptian pharaohs from around uh, 3100 to uh, 2890 BCE, the royal tombs of the Shang dynasty in China from 1600 uh, BCE to uh, 1046 BCE, as well as the tomb of Qin Shai Hung, uh, who died in 220 BCE, the first emperor of China. Huh. And we also see elements of this in Viking funeral customs from around uh, 921 CE. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ancient civilizations of uh, the Americas were also quite well known for the human sacrifices, the Incas, the Aztecs. I mean, the Aztecs engaged in the mass sacrifice of defeated enemy warriors, sometimes through the use of flower wars, uh, which were themselves ritualized warfare engagements. And, of course, the Aztecs, the Incas, and the Maya all seem to engage in child sacrifice as well yeah. uh, on occasion. Now, one thing you'll notice from a lot of these examples we mention is what types of people were usually sacrificed. And so we have we see practices of human sacrifice going on all around the ancient world, all over the place. Who who was usually the victim of this sacrifice? I would argue that in most cases, like you just talked about, defeated enemies, children, it's the powerless. It's people who don't have a lot of power and say so about what happens in society. So you get uh you know the the follower the followers of the king who has failed mm-hmm. and who has died, the person who the people who have come out of favor and out of power, but then also defeated enemies, uh children, teenagers, uh criminals, people convicted of crimes and enemies of the state, uh, people people generally without power. Yes, I think that's a fair assessment. And so even like Caesar, Julius Caesar tells us in his story of the Wicker Man, whether truthfully or not, again, the Gauls preferred to load up their Wicker Man with thieves and other criminals. But hey, if you're out of thieves, you know, some innocent people will just have to do. Yeah, you got to fill that wicker man. So generally, you're you're going to want to assume that the victims of human sacrifice most often are going to be chosen from among the most disadvantaged stations of society. So the poor, slaves, women, oppressed ethnic minorities, defeated enemies, criminals, uh, or perceived criminals, and and this is for fairly obvious reasons. The people making the rules in a society don't usually make rules that involve putting themselves at risk of being burned alive or beheaded. But today we want to look at a fascinating historical principle that runs counter to that, the concept of ritual regicide. The ritual sacrifice or or murder for magical purposes of a king or a monarch, the sacred slaughter of the most powerful person in a society. Yeah, it definitely turns most of our preconceptions of human sacrifice completely on their head. Yeah. But as we discuss it, it, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And you can see it even in the, uh, so even in the fabric of our current uh, systems of rule. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that more later. But, uh, this idea is, is not something we've just recently discovered. This is actually an idea that has a lot of precedent in, uh, in comparative religions and anthropology. And one place you can find a historical precedent for talking about ritual regicide is in the work of James G. Fraser. Uh, Fraser and the Golden Bough. So James Fraser, we should say right at the beginning, 
he he was a great writer and he was somebody who who did work he was a scottish anthropologist mm-hmm. and and the golden bough was his magnum opus it was this huge work on religious anthropology and and a comparative study in religion so it was various volumes of the golden bough that were published starting in 1890 and then continuing over the next few decades and what he was trying to do was find the common roots of myths and religious rituals around the world and the killing of the divine king is a ritual that plays centrally in his theory about where all these uh, myths and rituals come from. So uh, Fraser's work is what is it's just chock full of <laughs> I don't know 19th centuryisms and what people would today would probably just recognize as speculation. Very interesting speculation and Fraser was a very smart and creative and thoughtful guy, but it's full of him making connections in his mind and uh, and things that would not be considered the most rigorous or or neutral, unbiased science by our standards of, of social science today, but it's still a fascinating and highly influential work of, let's say, English literature. Yeah, yeah, it's highly readable, and uh, you know, I was just researching um, anthropo- anthropological views on myth for um, an episode that uh, has, at this point, already come out for yeah. Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, and, and that, of course, deals with all the different ways you can try and interpret it, interpret myth and folklore and legend. And, uh, and, and, and of course, Fraser's work came up in, in a number of the things I was reading. Most, most of them, you know, even that, even if they had severe bones to pick with him on certain issues, yeah. they, they, they would tend to say, well, you can't just discount Fraser. Like, it's oh, yeah. such an important work of, of, of anthropology that, uh, you know, Everybody's kind of working in its shadow to a certain extent. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's so good to read too. He was just such a great writer. It's one of those great works of uh, in the history of what you might call social mm-hmm. science or the or the predecessors to modern social science. While it might not have a whole lot of scientific merit today, it's still just a really great book to read as a book. It's great fun reading. It's imaginative. It's fascinating, and it was hugely influential at the time. Yeah. So it's a great thing to read if you want to understand the literature of the early 20th century because it influenced all kinds of people. The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot is highly influenced. Modernist literature in general, a lot of these writers were reading James Fraser and, and his ideas about myths and rituals. But So Fraser gets into the killing of the Divine King in chapter 24 of The Golden Bough, and, and this has a few sections. So first of all, he, he establishes this principle that he calls the mortality of the gods, uh, which is where he says that in many traditional pagan religions, the gods are understood to be mortal. They're not timeless, perfect, abstract, eternal beings. They're, they're not the ground of all being. They're not the, the, the origin of all, but they're, they're beings. They're flesh and blood beings that can walk around, that they experience travails, passion, struggles, and eventually they die. And of course, if you are linking the idea of kingship with the idea of godship, if the gods at some point die, then the king at some point must die. Yeah, one is then as an extension of the other. Yeah. And so it, Fraser goes on to talk about the concept of kings killed when their strength fails. So many societies, he says, have a belief in this divine king concept where the king is in some sense a species of God, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the king is, is somewhere between a mortal and a full-on divine God or might in some sense be a full-on divine God that is just, you know, living among your society as a king. And also in some sense, the king and the kingdom are one. They are, they are linked by sympathetic magic. 
and their fates are inextricably linked. So the health of the king relates directly to the health of the kingdom. Yeah, his body is the body of the people, the body of the nation. Yeah. And, uh, and is in a sense, uh, the, the manifestation of the god as well. Exactly. So the, the failure of a king is the failure of a kingdom. And the king becomes this magical metonym for the society itself. And what Fraser does here is he goes on to give all these anthropological examples of societies that he claims, societies and religions and tribal groups that he claims have this idea of divine kingship where the king is killed when his uh, when his failing strength or failing health or failing virility or, or something like that seems to indicate a, a by, by link of sympathetic magic, a bad omen for the kingdom. So if the king begins to become weak, you've got to kill the king to save the kingdom from becoming weak as well. Yeah, let him go out on a good note, right? Exactly. While he's still young and healthy. And I want to read a a quote from Fraser. He says, quote, for they believe, as we have seen, that the king's life or spirit is so sympathetically bound up with the prosperity of the whole country that if he fell ill or grew senile, the cattle would sicken and cease to multiply. The crops would rot in the fields and men would perish of widespread disease. Hence, in their opinion, the only way of averting these calamities is to put the king to death while he is still hale and hearty, in order that the divine spirit which he has inherited from his predecessors may be transmitted in turn by him to his successor, while it is still in full vigor and has not yet been impaired by the weakness of disease and old age. So there are all these stories he he gives where, uh, you know, there's an account of a tribe where the tribe has a king, and then as soon as the tribe as soon as the king maybe begins to show gray hair or mm-hmm. begin or has a missing tooth or has any other or uh, cannot produce children anymore or has any kind of sign that their strength and youth and vigor is failing there's a ritualized process by which the king is put to death so that a new healthy king can be installed saving the country from being punished by this uh, link with weakness through sympathetic magic and then sometimes he also recounts that there are there are societies and groups that don't want to wait until the king shows signs of uh, of illness or failing strength so they just have a fixed term it's sort of like a term limit on the king <laughs> but you don't want to come to the end of that term because you don't just leave office you get put to death so this is Fraser's idea and as i said uh, you know his work is really fascinating it's fun to read but it's not necessarily the most rigorous work of modern anthropology. So the question is, this whole process Fraser is talking about, the the ritual sacrifice of the divine king, do we really see the ritual sacrifice of kings in the real world? Is this something that really gets enacted in one form or another? And what role does it play in the societies that do uh, that do practice things like this? Well, to answer that question, Joe, I think we're going to have to go to the bog. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's time to consult some bog bodies. What do you think? The bog, the bog. I want to put you in a scenario. Okay, put me in it. Imagine you are digging down into a peat bog. Now, bogs are places where there's vertical accumulation of dead plant matter over time, such as layers of dead moss or something like that. The, this is dead, old plant matter, and it's known as peat, and it makes a very useful fuel if you want to heat your house or boil some porridge for dinner. Uh, so you go out and you dig in the peat, and you're shoveling through the peat, getting some nice fuel for the fire, and your shovel strikes something that looks like a hunk of old leather. But then you notice this hunk of old leather, 
You know, it almost looks like it's in the shape of a foot. Like, a, like an old leathery uh, fruit by the foot <laughs> or fruit roll up uh, that's uh, <laughs> dark and, and withered, but it's it's foot shaped. And it has toes. Okay. And the toes have toenails and it's attached to a leg and you keep going up the leg and the legs attached to a body. Uh oh. It seems you have discovered a bog body. Ah. So peat bogs, these bogs we talked about, have been known to naturally preserve bodies that are laid to rest into them, essentially because of the soil chemistry, the chemistry of the bog environment. Uh, when you sink under the peat, you are in this cold anaerobic environment with a low pH. So that's a, a, a non-oxygenated environment with uh, with acidity, which staves off rot and provides a sort of natural mummification to a body that's that's preserved this way. And these human remains can be very pristine in some way. So they'll, they'll often be sort of darkened and shriveled and hardened, but they'll keep all the tissues intact. Yeah, like a lot of mummification, you would notice if one of these was walking down the street and you would say, that does not look right. That should not be alive. Right. We should rise up with fire against it. But in terms of finding a body from uh-huh. the, from the past, it's very well preserved. Yeah, there's far less decay than there would be from a burial in normal soil. Right. Uh, and so we can often see signs from these bog bodies because of how pristinely they're preserved that the person interred in the bog died by homicide. That's interesting. So we see these all over. Uh, we're mainly focusing here on the ones that are in like uh, northern and western Europe. Mm-hmm. So in northern Europe, you have peat bog bodies that often look like they, they didn't just fall into a bog and die. These people were put to death. They might be bound, have their hands or feet bound. Uh, they might be partially or fully naked. Uh, in some of these cases, it might be the simple execution of criminals, but there have been many that have been interpreted as likely sacrificial in nature. There's human sacrifice going on in Northern Europe, and these bodies are ending up in bogs. So there's there's perhaps even a sacred idea about what the bog is and why they are taken to the bog. Like perhaps it's a... It's a no man's land or a crossroads or a, or a, a, a sacred or, or damned place. Yeah, some of them might have been sacred locations. In fact, we're going to talk about one now that could have been. So let's meet a couple of bog bodies. Both of these were discovered in central Ireland in 2003, uh, just about 40 kilometers apart. Mm-hmm. And it was in the, it, one was in the town of Cloney Caven, County Meath, and the other was near Crogan Hill, County Offaly. And so the, the Crogan Hill one is known as Old Crogan Man. That sounds like a great name for an Irish whiskey, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Old Crogan Man. Yeah. What's your, What's your brand? Oh, I only drink Old Krogan Man. Yeah, give me four fingers of Old Krogan Man. Yeah, <laughs> four pruny black fingers from the bog. Oh, it's great. So Old Krogan Man probably lived due to, to radiocarbon dating. Uh, probably lived between 362 BCE and 175 BCE, and he is missing his head and legs. But based on what remains, his height can be calculated to be six feet and six inches, or 198 centimeters tall. That, that is tall. That is dang tall for the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's tall then, today. Yeah, right? that's tall today. Back then, people were short. Yeah, but and, this, is, this is like pro wrestler height right here. Yeah, this is especially tall for the time. Uh, and so another interesting thing about him is finely manicured nails and oh. delicate hands uh, preserved, indicating that he was an aristocratic person who didn't have to do manual labor. Uh, his last meal was determined to be buttermilk and cereals, but based on his body, we can determine that his diet was rich in meat. 
This is interesting because when you think back on ancient peoples, you, you, and especially if you're thinking about um, the type of uh, culture where people are taken out to the bog and hacked to pieces, uh-huh. you might think, oh, it's just a bunch of sort of primal barbarian types. But no, here we see evidence that there's there's st- there's definitely a social hierarchy yeah. and perhaps even kind of kind of a subspecies of individual that is. Uh, that, that that doesn't have to engage in physical labor. That gets to eat a better diet, and in a way, maybe they're kind of uh, they're, they're pampered. They're like a pampered uh, sacrificial subspecies of the of the uh, of of the people. Well, I mean, yeah, what people do make of this, wh- whether or not he he was prepared for sacrifice in any way, knowingly or not, well, mm-hmm. what people do make of that is that he was definitely uh, some kind of aristocrat. Mm-hmm. He was of some upper class, leading you to think he maybe if there was anything like a kingly class in this ancient Irish setting. There, uh, th- this guy would have been among it. So he 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 was able to have plenty of access to meat, which means he, he was rich. You know, had good diet. Uh, he didn't have to work with his hands. He had these nicely manicured hands, and he had the uh, good nutrition that would allow you to achieve a height like six six. So really, he has nothing to complain about, <laughs> right? Uh, but w- w- well, no, he might have something well, to complain. He has about. one thing to complain about at the end, but don't we all? Yeah. So we'll get to that in a moment. So then there's this other guy, this uh, Cloney Caven man, different bog body likely lived around the same time 392 BCE to 201 BCE this guy how tall was he five feet and two inches or 157 centimeters that's I I wonder if that would have been short even for the time yeah maybe so but then again he, he probably made up for it in personality I'm yeah. guessing yeah. no he made up for it by spiking his hair and this is oh, true yes this is true Cloney Caven man wore ancient hair gel he spiked his hair up into how would you describe this it was like a cross between a faux hawk and a pompadour yeah yeah uh, yeah like a yeah, so, sort of a mohawk sort of a pompadour all sort of gelled together with this uh, this ancient um, Pomade. Yeah, so he actually had ancient hair gel that they did a chemical analysis on and found it was made from vegetable oil and pine resin. And the pine resin was sourced from trees not local to this region of Ireland. It was from uh, Spain and France, which was determined by the archaeologist Stephen Buckley. And so that indicates that this person had resources to spare, you know, money to spend on personal grooming products that were Mm -hmm. imported from elsewhere. Oh, mine, my hair gel is from Southern Europe. (laughs) He's not using fop. He's a Dapper Dan man. That's right. For sure. (laughs) He's a Dapper Dan man indeed. Uh, But okay, so what's the deal with these guys? Both of them... Both of them had some troubles before they ended up in the bog. Something happened to them. Yeah, you don't just wind up in the bog <laughs> right. not running into trouble. So let's go back to old Krogan, man. Uh, he, he had some nice jewelry, too. Nice oh, for yeah. the time. He, around one bicep, he had this leather armband with like a bronze amulet on it that had these uh, the, these copper alloy elements. So that makes you think, again, he had some money to spend on just some, some nice-looking stuff. And perhaps that there was something very official and sacred in his um, death, because he's still wearing that. I mean, oh yeah, because as we're about to discuss, uh, s- something was done to him, and those that did it uh, didn't make off with an armband. So. Yeah, so according to a National Geographic article I was reading about this, I want to read a quote. Old Krogan, man, he was stabbed. His nipples were sliced, and he had holes cut in his upper arms through which a rope was threaded in order to restrain him, and he was also cut in half across the torso. Oh, wow. So, so I mean, somebody was... This was going down. I mean, this yeah. was not not good for old Krogan man. He was getting his arms threaded. Ugh, I mean, that's gross. Yeah, that's something that I've seen come up uh, occasionally 
in historical documents, specifically in one of the Viking sagas. There's a scene where I, I believe it's one faction or one family. They uh, they they get into trouble. They fall out of favor. And there's a scene where they're all strung up on a rope mm-hmm. with the rope going through their uh, uh, behind their Achilles tendon. Ooh, yeah. So th- there is something symbolic, I guess, in the idea that you're not only tying someone up, but you're you're tying them like through their body. So they're their body becomes a part of the bind. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's weird. It's one of those things that I'm, I'm not sure there's quite an accurate uh, description for it or name for it, at least in in English. Yeah. Like what do you what do you call that? It's it's more severe than just restraining someone. Yeah. And then of course they also cut him in half. True. They they went for the complete uh, fatality on this one. Yeah. But then of course uh, there were some serious wounds in Cloney Caven Man as well. So Cloney Caven Man was cut in half by the peat cutting machine that discovered him when he was discovered. But that was not the only injury to this bog body before he died, uh, or maybe not before he died. Before he was deposited in the bog, he had three axe wounds to the head, one axe wound to the chest, and he was disemboweled. Okay. So that's the guy with the, with the faux hawk pompadour. He had all, all those axe wounds and disemboweled. So yeah. So what's going on with these two men? Well, both of them were young. They showed few signs of physical labor during their lives. They were healthy at the time of their deaths. They looked like they were rich. And so there are a lot of different ways when you find bodies like this that you could interpret what happened to them because we don't know. You know, this is in the, this is in the, the cloudy mists of history. The cloudy mists. What a wonderful, uh, little tautology that is uh, in the, the boggy mists of history. <laughs> uh, so we don't know what happened, but there have been people who have offered some interpretations and there's one I'm going to get to in a minute that was pretty interesting, but what is the information we have to work with? Well, these guys were rich. They were, they were well cared for in one way or another physically before their deaths and they met a violent end. So what do you make of that? And I was reading an article in Archaeology Magazine about these two bog bodies that had a really interesting interpretive theory coming from Eamon P. Kelly, who is the Keeper of Irish Antiquities at the National Museum of Ireland. And his interpretation is that these two guys were, in some sense, failed kings. Now, whether this means they were vying for kingship and they failed and were punished, or whether they were kings who were the, their, uh, you know, their rule had faltered in the uh, in the Fraser kind of sense, like their their strength had failed or uh, something bad had happened, and they were held accountable for it for sort of magical sympathetic reasons. Uh, we don't know, but Kelly says this. I believe these men were failed kings or failed candidates for kingship who were killed and placed in bogs that formed important tribal boundaries. Both Cloney Caven and Old Krogan men's nipples were pinched and cut. And, and Kelly says that sucking a king's nipples was a gesture of submission in ancient Ireland. Cutting them would have made him incapable of kingship. Okay. Wow. I was not, I was not familiar with this, uh, association of no. the king's nipples at I, all. I'd never heard of this before, but, uh, but according to this, uh, to, to Kelly here, uh, yeah, so you want to show that you, uh, you assent to the rule of the king in ancient Ireland, you suck on his nipples, and if you thus damage a man's nipples very decisively, he is incapable of being a king. Huh. It's it's interesting to think about this in terms of you know ancient societies and the the tug of war between uh, uh, between feminine and masculine powers. But could here because here we see the appropriation of of feminine power qualities 
in the male kings. Yeah. That there is a nurturing aspect to their nipples. It's really interesting. But slice those away to their point, and you have taken away you a part of their rule, like you've bodily taken away part of the rule, in the same way that by cutting a six a six foot six man in half, you were taking away his stature. In the same way that by threading rope through his limbs, you were binding him not only uh, you know not only binding his limbs, but you were. Let's see. There's not really an accurate word for this, right? It's like you're the, the, the limbs themselves are becoming part of the binding. Yeah, it's clear that with all this violence, it's not just for the purpose of killing and causing pain. All of it seems to have a very symbolic kind of quality to it. Right. All of it gets some kind of magical significance crammed through. One last thing from that archaeology magazine from uh, uh, where the, they interview Eamon Kelly. Uh, I'll just quote from it. Quote. The body served as offerings to the goddess of the land to whom the king was wed in his inauguration ceremony. That's interesting. According to Kelly, both men's multiple injuries may reflect the belief that the goddess was not only one of the land and fertility, but also of sovereignty, war and death. By uh, And then this is a quote directly from Kelly. By using a range of methods to kill the victim, the ancient Irish sacrificed to the goddess in all her forms. Ah, that also makes the nipple things interesting to, to think of it as a, a, a matriarchal... Um uh, pantheon. Yeah. And then, but, but then you have, um, uh, you have male rulers. Exactly. Who then have symbolic power of their nurturing nipples, huh? Yeah. And so if Kelly's interpretation is correct, like we say that, you know, there's no way to know exactly what happened here, but Kelly's interpretation is these guys are in some sense of the kingly class. They may have been failed kings or attempted kings. And this is uh, a magical symbolic ritual putting them down and in some way decisively rejecting their kingship at the same time reinforcing their religious ideals, you know, saying this is for the goddess. Uh, you, you will not wed the goddess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, or you're already having wed the goddess is now dissolved. But there's another way you can approach the idea of ritual regicide, which is sort of something we talked about earlier, which is simulating it. Right. Yeah. And there's a wonderful example of this. Uh from Timor. We have to travel all the way to Timor. And the, the main article here that we're drawing from is uh, an, uh, work of anthropology from David Hicks, Making right. the King Divine, a Case Study in, in Ritual Regicide from Timor. And this is from 1996, published in the Journal of Royal Anthropological Institute. Yeah. And he's going to, uh, he's going to explain this, uh, this very interesting and very complex and detailed ritual that takes place between a couple of tribes on the island of Timor. Yes, and I will. I'll spare you some of the details because it honestly gets a little tedious yeah. at times. But uh, but overall, it's it's extremely fascinating. So Timor is an island of the Malay Archipelago, uh, currently divided between the sovereign states of East Timor and Indonesia. Mm-hmm. All right. So here, for for our purposes, though, we want to focus in on two ethnic groups in Central Timor: uh, the Titum and the Ima. Uh, each with their own distinct languages, but with a lot of cultural crossover. And they share a belief in a dualistic universe and a cyclical nature of human existence, etc. Yeah. Along the north coast of Timor. So imagine, uh, if, if you don't have a map in front of you, you can just imagine this island, right? The island uh, kind of runs east-west. Yeah, it looks, you know, kind of a rectangle. Yeah. yeah. It looks, you know, it's kind of, it looks like kind of like Tennessee, except it's an island. And uh, along the north coast, there's a, there's a lagoon known as Bemale. And it's rich in fish and crabs, crocodiles, or shrimp. Uh, very important um, 
for the people who live near it. And there are two villages that border it. One is a Tetum village and one is an Ema village. And they share a myth, myth-rich history of bloody conflict over the lagoon's riches. And over time, this violent history has transformed into a regular shared ritual called Abiyu, climaxing in the symbolic killing and restoration of a surrogate who is standing in for one of the village's kings. Hmm. So all of this serves as a means to commemorate the myth of the creation of uh, the lagoon itself, to recreate that myth, and to ensure that the fish supply remains abundant, you know, via supernatural ritual. Yeah. Now, in uh, in this article, Hicks seems to be working with some co- sort of theoretical framework based on Durkheim and some other anthropologists mm-hmm. and, and social critics, I think, uh, where where the idea is that rituals sort of reinforce categories of understanding in the society. Right. And so he he's looking at this. He has an interpretive framework and he's looking at this ritual as something that helps people understand uh, the relationship between social groups and the relationship to a geographical location and natural resources. Right. So up until 1950s, they carried this out every year around August. That's uh, where the dry season transitions into the wet season from masculine to feminine. Uh, and generally what would happen is dead fish and shrimp in the water would ritually tip locals off to the necessity of the ride. Yeah, they mentioned this. When you start seeing dead fish floating in the lagoon, now it's time to have the ritual. Right. And so at that point, uh, the the, uh, the king's masculine surrogate is selected. Uh, and then he's joined at the altar by two female animals and a ritual bridge is built. Um, really, a lot of tedious things go down at this point. But eventually, the surrogate king retires to a special hut where he fasts, he doesn't talk. And the next morning, priests take the surrogate to the water and they pretend to strike a lethal blow to his head. And then he pretends to die. Mm-hmm. And there's a great quote from um, from Hicks' piece. He says, quote, as a god, the king is at this moment the spirit of a culture hero who figures in a myth. So huh. that's important to keep in mind here. At this point, a pig is brought out, and this serves as kind of a surrogate surrogate king because they kill it uh, for real, and then the blood drains into the lagoon, and then it's time to go fishing. And then there's another ritual sacrifice and uh, of the surrogate king, and after this, utilizing a buffalo sacrifice, uh, he rejoins humanity after casting the sacrificed buffalo's uh, entrails into the lagoon. So essentially, the divine, the divine king offers up his life to ensure economic future while also uh, uniting these two groups as one, these two groups that have different languages but shared cultural elements and depend on the same lagoon. Yeah, and I, re- I want to read one quote from Hicks. He says, quote, By sacrificing their king, the people of Bimali not only bring land, control over fertility, life, divinity, and kingship into a synthetic unity, but make it possible for them to sacrifice themselves as a collectivity by transforming king and society into a god who, revitalized by the sacrifice, reasserts his power to restore life. So there's so much uh, like associative magic going on. The society is magically embodied by the king. Mm-hmm. The king is magically embodied by the surrogate. The king magically embodies the myth. And there's there's sort of this uh, everything that touches something becomes the the uh, the symbolic equivalent of that thing. Yeah. And Hicks continues, uh, in performing this, the ultimate act of self-abnegation, because the society becomes the king, the king is 
surrogately killed in simulation. Uh, by, by this ultimate act of self-abnegation, the collectivity impresses upon its members its power to recreate itself as a divinity and hence restore itself to life. In this sense, the king is no more divine than the society he represents, but no less divine than the god he becomes. Hmm. That's fascinating. And uh, as we were dis- discussing prior to recording this, you look at this ritual, and there seem to be so many layers of sanitation going on here. Yeah. You're pretending to kill a surrogate for the king. You're spilling the blood of animals in the place of even the surrogate's blood. You can easily imagine a scenario where uh, where there's an older version of this in which a king is actually sacrificed. And one day the king says, hey, uh, how about we just use a surrogate instead? And maybe he can die, and I can just kind of do my thing and continue to live. And they go, oh, yeah, we'll do that. And then later on, the the surrogate is saying, like, I don't know if I want to take this gig. Is it possible that I just you just pretend to hit me with the with that death hammer (laughs) and I pretend to die? And maybe if you really need some blood and entrails in there, you can just like maybe kill a couple of sacred animals. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, in cases like this, as we've said, we we, we don't know what happened, but Mm -hmm. it's quite easy to see if we're going to allow ourselves to speculate how something like that could progress. Yeah. Uh, You know, ritual sacrifice, if the person being sacrificed has any power to say no, at some point somebody's probably going to start trying to say no. Yeah, or it's possible that like an interpretation like this, I'm not giving them enough credit, and that ultimately the 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 brutal murder of the king is based in a mythological form. Yeah. And for me to interpret it as having been a literal re- regicide at any point is not giving their mythological um, uh, rooting enough credit. That's highly possible, too. I guess we don't know. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll dive right back into the topic. Speaking of surrogates, there's a topic I think we should come back to that we've actually talked about on the show before in the very first episode I ever did of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You remember that, Robert? Oh, was that the first one? I definitely remember the episode. The very first one we ever did was the one on eclipses. Oh. And uh, that one was fun, but in that we talked very briefly, just touched on the idea of the ancient Mesopotamian eclipse kings. And I think this is a really interesting variation on the theme of ritual regicide because it... uh, it, it it involves this surrogate kind of quality and also involves the king looking out for his own life. Mm-hmm. So I think we should definitely look at the eclipse kings of ancient Mesopotamia in more detail. Are, are you game, Robert? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so in ancient Mesopotamia, in the first millennium BCE, uh, royal culture was really concerned with fate and the meaning of omens, including astrological omens. So all kinds of events could serve as symbolic predictions of the fate of the king or the fate of the nation. And one example was lunar eclipses. Now, Robert, which is the lunar eclipse? Uh, The lunar eclipse is the one involving the moon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Good call there. No, it's the one with uh, where you see the Earth's shadow falling across yes. the surface of the moon. And you can tell if for, for people who didn't understand the astronomy involved, lunar eclipses, actually any kind of eclipse, could be quite terrifying. Yeah, and we, and we explored some other modes of this in that uh, episode about eclipses because you're you're seeing like the moon is eaten by uh, this demonic force or some other, uh, some other uh, mythological uh, outcome is in play. Exactly. Uh, and so in a lunar eclipse, the Earth passes 
passes between the sun and the moon. You see the moon starts to turn red. Uh, the moon, the shadow can pass over sort of different quadrants of the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but essentially the moon is going to glow red and, and it naturally invites sinister interpretations. And it's certainly less apocalyptic compared to the solar eclipse with yes. the moon passing in front of the sun. It's, it's, it's perhaps, and that's, that's the thing. It's more, ooh, something's not right here. Something is, is off as opposed to, Holy crap, uh, the, the light of day is leaving us. Exactly. But it, it still was enough to signal a, an ill omen. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the astrologers of ancient Mesopotamian empires, they could predict lunar eclipses with some rough degree of accuracy. They weren't always, uh, fully accurate yet, but they, they sort of had what, what, uh, some of the scholars I read called rules of thumb. Right. You can sort of make a good guess about when a lunar eclipse is coming. And in many cases, possibly depending on which part of the moon Earth shadow falls over, the experts concluded that a lunar eclipse brought a very bad omen for the king up to and including the king's death. But if you're the king, what are you going to do about it? Hmm, well... You've got all these swords and archers and chariots, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to stop the orbital path of the moon. Well, I mean, in many cases, if you're a king or even a modern tyrant, uh, modern uh, despot in some uh, situation, you could have some lookalikes, right? They just wander around out there, and maybe they'll catch an assassin's bullet instead of you. But this isn't a human assassin. This, this is, uh, this is an eclipse. Yeah. How do you dodge that bullet? Well, maybe by exactly the same method. Ah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, there's plenty of evidence that the ancient Mesopotamian leaders took a sort of direct action plan of avoiding fate. And I think this is really interesting because it seems to say something about what they thought fate was. I'll get to that in a minute. Here's one variation. Uh, so there's an ancient uh, Mesopotamian scholar, uh, Nergal Etir, and he predicts the coming of a lunar eclipse in January 673 BCE. And he gives a suggestion to the Assyrian king Esarhaddon. He says, quote, In the beginning of the year, a flood will come and break the dikes. When the moon has made the eclipse, the king, my lord, should write to me. As a substitute for the king, I will cut through a dike here in Babylonia in the middle of the night. No one will hear about it. So, uh, Nergal Etir plans to avert the fated flood by secretly causing a small-scale flood himself. Hmm. So you have fate predicted, and then you can step in, and if you sort of like make the thing happen yourself and hurry it along, you can avoid having it happen naturally, perhaps on a much larger scale. Okay. Sort of pre-disaster yourself, but a disaster that you get to micromanage yourself. Yeah, and here's where the dictator's body doubles come in. One solution uh, to an eclipse portending the death of a king is to set up a decoy. The crown could install a substitute king known as a Sarpui and substitute queen to take the royal mantle during the period that the eclipse was predicted. Uh, so I've got a couple of sources here that I used for this. One is uh, Ula Suzanne Koch, Mesopotamian astro- uh, Astrology, an Introduction to Babylonian and Assyrian Celestial Divination. And the other is Jack Newton Lawson, The Concept of Fate in Ancient Mesopotamia of the First Millennium Towards the Understanding of Shimtu. So you're the king. You want to pick a substitute to absorb your bad omen for you so you don't have to die. Who's the substitute? Uh, generally, they say it's going to be somebody, like we talked about earlier, uh, without power, right? A prisoner of war, uh, a criminal who's been condemned to death, or a, an enemy of the king, some kind of political rival. Mm-hmm. Or uh, they also say, or a gardener or a simpleton. Man, <laughs> that is not fair. 
Well, it, it sucks yeah. to be that gardener or that quote simpleton. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> Dressing the simpleton up as the king and then sacrificing him. I think we can all agree that that that's and 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 in doing so, the king is essentially weaseling out of his um, responsibility to die. Like if you if you look back at some of these mythic models of uh, of divine rule, it's like. Yeah, you get you get to rule, but your job is to die at the end. Right. But then inevitably, these powerful individuals figure ways to weasel out of that responsibility. Right. Exactly. Uh, so, so what does the process look like? Well, uh, Lawson writes, "Quote: The man was taken to the royal palace, treated with wine, washed and anointed. Uh, I think that would mean like anointed with oil, mm-hmm. uh, dressed in the king's finery, furnished with the royal insignia, and then enthroned. So it sounds like he, he's got all the. You know, it's not just." kind of like a quick mock ceremony. They're doing the whole nine yards. Uh, and then he writes, quote, a young woman or virgin was also seated with him as his queen. Oh, no, again, that sucks no, just to be drawing more people into the, into, yeah. the, into, the, into the sacrifice, yeah. Uh, and so at this point, the real king and the substitute king sort of formally exchange roles. So the substitute king is referred to as king, and then thereafter, the real king he hangs out in the palace, but he is therefore addressed by his exorcists, scholars, and servants as peasant or farmer. Huh. Can you imagine that? The king's walking around. You have a fake king everybody is calling king. And when you address the real king who has power of life and death over you, you must call him peasant. Ah, then, of course, this is a motif that occurs... Uh, throughout uh, uh, history, and the, you know the 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 prince and the and the pauper, the uh, right. uh, the man in the iron mask, uh, any of these situations, uh, trading trading places, right? Yeah. Uh, any situation where the most royal individual and the lowliest individual in a, in a culture have to swap places. Yeah. And then what happens next? Well, then the new king gets the bad news. So the, the bad omens that had previously applied to the real king all get written down on a tablet and then read out loud to the substitute king and queen, essentially like reading the charges against them. You uh-huh. know, the, these are the, the magical omens you've been condemned to. And the substitute king then has to go in front of Shamash, the, the divine judge, the god, and recite all of the bad omens that have now been... Uh, transferred to him and this sort of officially magically transfers the omens over to the substitute king just to make sure the transferal takes place the document listing the bad omens was literally attached to the substitute king's clothes so he's walking around with like a tablet saying you're going to die you're going to you know oh. all this bad stuff's going to happen to you Am I alone in wondering why this wasn't made into like a, a Poly Shore time travel vehicle in the nineties? <laughs> you know, where he travels back to Mesopotamia uh, and he becomes this—he uh, be, he becomes like the the, the uh, he becomes the surrogate king for the eclipse and doesn't realize it to the last minute. I think maybe that was the original script of A Knight's Tale starring uh, yeah. Heath Ledger, and then they they changed a bunch of stuff <laughs> around over time. Or are you thinking of First Night with uh, uh, Martin Lawrence? I think. I think maybe I'm thinking of Forever Night. Okay. <laughs> I'm not thinking of any of that. I'm sorry, people. Uh, okay, so as we mentioned, they seem to go out of their way to create the illusion that this this king is a real king, this fake king. No, 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 this is really the real king now. Uh, so they say he had a royal entourage, about 10% the size of the real king's court, considering how big the real king's entourage is. That's probably pretty big, including uh, Lawson writes musicians, concubines, cooks, confectioners. He gets confectioners. Yeah, but more to your point, he gets the concubines. Like, yeah. These are royal concubines. Exactly. And, and- 
and and cupcakes, presumably. Coke also mentions that he receives a large bodyguard, which is intensely ironic. Yeah. That well, they've installed this guy to absorb the king's death omen, and they give him a huge bodyguard. Like, he's got jaws from uh-huh. uh, James Bond standing beside him. Well, that does make me wonder, what if there was a death uh, threat? What if there was a plot against the life of the surrogate king? Like, what does that mean if the surrogate king, the Eclipse King, is assassinated before he can fulfill his duty? Maybe that puts the the the, the real king... In jeopardy. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That, that's a good question. Uh, but then, and, okay, so the Eclipse King is also treated to banquets known as Neptunu. Uh, just think how expensive all this must have been. Yeah. How long did the Eclipse King reign? Well, Coke says that he sat on the throne for up to a hundred days, often shorter, even though the period affected by a lunar eclipse theoretically was determined by the watch in which it occurred, measuring 100, 200, and 300 days. So Coke's saying that you know, really the omen period is longer, but I guess th- they didn't usually go longer than 100 days. Maybe they were impatient. So this is a lengthy charade yes. that they're carrying out here. And, and it's in, in involving like not only the ritual, ultimate ritual sacrifice of the individual, but all the rituals of, uh, of kingship that come along with just occupying that station. Exactly. Eventually, according to the historical records, the uh, the reign of the Eclipse King and the Queen would come to an end, and according to records, they would die. Uh, the term used in the records, I, th- I found this really interesting, mm-hmm. the term used in the records in contemporary correspondence is Anasimti Alaku, which, according to Lawson, is a metaphor otherwise used to denote a death by natural causes. Right, so according to the official documentation, they die naturally. So there's not a like ritual beheading or anything of that nature. Right, but that can't be the case, right? right? Because the king and queen needed to die on command mm-hmm. just in time for the peasant to come back and become the real king again. So how could they have died of natural causes? It's obvious they were put to death, but we don't know how. Some scholars have speculated based on context clues that they were poisoned at the end of their reign with food or drink oh. containing an overdose of soporific. Poison uh, confections or maybe poison concubines. Yeah, yeah, who knows? Uh, but, but in any case, they would die and then they would take the bad omens with them all the way to the grave. And, uh, Lawson actually explains how in, in his reading, the, the idea of the natural death metaphor, metaphor kind of makes sense in context, uh, since the substitute king and queen were absorbing the omen of fate, their death was in some sense fated. Uh, or in some sense natural, no matter by what means they died. So even if you killed them, the fact that they had absorbed a death omen that's supposed to be a, a you know a, a consequence of fate means that uh, yeah yeah the the universe killed them. Right. The universe was going to launch a bullet at the king. This guy's gotten in front of it, and yeah. so now everything's good. We can continue on with the reign of the real king. Right. And so after the burial of the false king, the real king returns, uh, has to undergo ritual cleansing, and then there's, there's also this elaborate funeral ritual for the substitute king and queen. Uh, they kill the queen, too. This, uh, but the, keeping up the appearance of true kingship even after the evil prophecy has been fulfilled. And so anyway, I mentioned that I was going to say something about how what this says about how they believe fate works. I can't imagine a person of any major religion today thinking that you could so easily trick God or the gods or magical forces at work in nature and avoid their will. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think in that we have to go, we have to try and put ourselves in that uh, mindset in a, in a, 
in a culture where like just the the mythic importance of the individual is so essential and the cyclical nature of everything in our lives so it's kind of like we are all we're all cogs in this this in this machine of mythological cycle and so it's not so much that you're trying to fool the gods or even fool the the people but you're trying you you know that certain mechanisms have to take place certain movements have to take place in the mythological framework and they're just tweaking it so that 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 gear still shifts but it doesn't uh doesn't it crush the the king himself yeah yeah in in, in a way it's, it's, it's kind a, of like finding a legal uh, legal loophole today yeah yeah i think some scholars have actually looked at this and said that it indicates that um for many of these these ancient Mesopotamian religious leaders and scholars, they looked at the magical aspects of the universe, you know, divine will and fates and th- things having magical influence over our lives as a kind of natural law in a way, mm-hmm. not so much as like the, you know, the uh, the explicit will of an agent, but just sort of like forces that could be understood and manipulated. All right. So having discussed these specific examples of early ritual regicide both uh, both symbolic uh, and, and you know symbolic and figurative and also very literal yeah. in some cases um, it's kind of interesting to then uh, bring it back to the present and think about um, human sacrifice as a whole and not only like literal human sacrifice, but all of the various symbolic uh, forms of it that have continued even past the point where uh, individual cultures would would never dream of saying that they practiced human sacrifice. Right. I mean, if you look at it from the point of view that human sacrifice is sort of scratching some kind of itch that people Mm -hmm. in general tend to have, even if we're no longer doing it for explicitly religious or magical ritual reasons, there's probably still a way people are finding to scratch this itch. Right. Like we already mentioned the, like the violent downfall of rulers. And if yeah. that's not um, an inherent part of a system, then maybe it is something that systems do because the, because the people end up taking the reins of that. Yeah. Well, in the, uh, in the James Fraser kind of sense where mm-hmm. when the strength of the king fails, you see the, the people step in to kill the king to, you know, sort of protect themselves from the, the symbolic magic of the king's virility failing them and their society. I think you can maybe see that in the ends met by many strongman dictators in yeah. the 20th century. Like, uh, you see, uh, the, the violent punishment and, and just sort of public mockery and treatment of the dictators you'd think of, like Hitler and, uh, and Mussolini and stuff, you know, uh, whether they ended up, you know, hung on public display or, uh, as Eddie Izzard would say, I think, in a ditch covered in petrol on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could look at that as well as just, you know, their enemies destroying them and getting revenge on them. And I think that that is a major part of it. But I wonder if there's also part of it where someone who at some point may have been, a, you know, a supporter of one of these strong men has seen the strong man fail. Yeah. And now that they see his strength has left him, they want nothing to do with it. They want to ritually purge that failing bad magic. Yeah, indeed. I mean, and, and not only like the the bodily desecration of the individual, but also like the continued desecration of the individual through even uh, through fiction and media. Like in, in speaking about Hitler, like we don't have a, ga- a guy Fox Day for Hitler, right? But maybe we should because we seem to, we can't stop 
re-killing Hitler in fictional form, be it, uh, you know, a Wolfenstein uh, video game or uh, the, the, the uh, assassination of Hitler in uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. Like, we, we keep recreating it or creating it in a new, in a new way. We, the, the time travel scenario, everyone's like, oh, would you go back in time and kill Hitler? Like, why, why does that keep coming up? Yeah. We can't stop fantasizing about, about his death. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, is that just, is there a simpler explanation? Is yeah. it just that we, well, we recognize him as a bad person and a very obvious enemy and you want to destroy an enemy? Or is there something more symbolic and magical to it as well? Yeah, I and mean, then also various assassinations of, uh, of not only, um, Beloved leaders, but also you know hated ones, uh, reviled leaders. You, you see those as being uh, subjects that we just continue to fascinate about. I mean, just JFK, for example. Oh yeah, which- I mean, I feel like this is a perfect example of if you wanted to come up with a modern idea of the 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 king who's killed before his strength begins to fail. Mm-hmm. Like we never saw the post presidency JFK. Right. We never saw JFK have to fight for reelection. Uh, we never saw JFK in in his post presidency years growing old. We only have this image of the strong, young, powerful, healthy JFK. Uh, I mean, despite however, I, I think he was taking a lot of painkillers and stuff like that. But uh-huh. despite how, how, uh, however unhealthy he actually was, he looked, it seemed powerful, strong, healthy, young, virile. And he died that way. So it kind of, again, embodies that, that Fraser kind of mentality about how uh, ke- keeping the kingship uh, infused with that magical strength. Yeah, and again, it's a story we can't stop retelling. Right. Both uh, just historical versions of it, fictionalized versions of it, and conspiracy theories surrounding it. Exactly. Now, I, I do feel like I need to uh, make a note here about public execution and mob violence. Because let's not forget that there's there there's overt human sacrifice, and then there are acts of public murder that certainly fit all the requirements of human sacrifice. Uh, for instance, take public execution. There's a practice that continues to this day in, in certain parts of the world. And at the heart of public execution throughout history, you have a clear element of ritual and symbolic power. Yeah. So the executors are not merely removing the offending individual or even punishing them. They are making a statement, perhaps even a mythic statement, intended for consumption by the attending community. The ritual itself might be situated in a religious rite or elements of military or state. But in the but the, in the killing act may be instantaneous. It might be prolonged. Uh, but in more brutal measures, the victim is unmade. He yeah. or she is reduced in the eyes of the onlookers. Perhaps it's masculinity or beauty that's robbed of them. Strength, vo- voice. It goes right back to those those peat that peat bog example of the bog people who are the body of the king is dismantled. The yeah. power of the king is bodily dismantled. Yeah, yeah. There, I, I think it is very hard to look at most of the regalia of public execution and not conclude that there is for people, uh, if if not an explicitly magical significance, a very strongly symbolic significance. Right. Uh, another area, you can make a very strong case for southern lynchings in the United States as being acts of, of human sacrifice. These, are, of course, were acts of racial violence perpetrated by uh, uh, by individuals in the South against uh, against black individuals. Yeah. Uh, and 
it's easy to, in my experience growing up, it's easy to have a very sanitized version of what this consisted of. Yeah. But the actual incidents were anything but. We're talking about very violent and torturous deaths of individuals, uh, removal of body parts, burning, uh, the keeping of body parts, the commemorating of the event through uh, photography in some cases. Oh, yeah. And uh, in various historians, including uh, Donald G. Matthews, uh, he's written about this a, a lot, has pointed out that all the elements of ritual human sacrifice are there. The, ri- the religious, even, ritualized unmaking of an individual because of their perceived threat, uh, perhaps to, to racial purity. Totally, I can see that. I mean, it, all, all this elements are there. It's ritualized. It's symbologized. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, it's motivated by strong emotional impulses and feelings of uh, social cohesion. Yeah. And uh, and beyond that, I think you, there, you can see strong indicators uh, in certain modes of gang or organized crime violence uh, uh, throughout history that, that fall into the category of human sacrifice. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of ritual regicide, I mean, think about um, th- if you just I, I don't know how real gang mob violence goes down in reality, but mm-hmm. I can certainly say if you just think about the Sopranos or something, uh-huh. they have a very almost magical feeling about the role of leaders yeah. in the gang where they uh they almost a- accomplish a magical act by killing a leader of a gang you, you know they say like oh, we got to kill tony soprano we got to decapitate and deal with what's left uh why i mean wh- why why is what is the magical power in killing this one guy yeah and if the gang is the gang is made of hundreds yeah yeah we end up investing so much in the ruler of this group uh, because ultimately a divine king, uh, the king of a nation, the king of a small cultural group, a cult leader, an organized crime leader, they're all kind of serving the same mode. Even the, the head of a corporation is kind of in, you know, cast from that same mold. You know, I was trying to think of examples of things that go on today in our modern world that you can think of as being not just like human sacrifice, but like ritual regicide, you know, the killing of the king mm-hmm. uh, for magical purposes. And I, I couldn't think of anything that seemed like a perfect fit, but I'm sure there are things out there. And there are things that seem like a kind of sort of fit. One that came to my mind is a celebrity roast, which granted is not a king, but it is a celebrity, which has a kind of a divine right. uh, power in our own civilization. And yeah. how do those typically typically go? Generally, um, a celebrity kind of past their prime or maybe you know on the on the you know uh, on on the back end of their fame unless it's Bieber yeah they're they're brought uh, before a crowd they're attended to by um, by their friends and peers and then they systematically insult and just take them down uh you know not violating their body but but just systematically tearing their character apart yeah they die on the stage <laughs> Uh, symbolically. But then at the end, what do they get to do? They generally get to uh, then uh, throw out some zingers at the individuals who roasted them. Yeah. And in a way, they get to uh, to come they back to rise life. back, yeah. yeah. Just like our, uh, our king of the lagoons. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, you have uh, mock uh, regicides that continue in some cultures through the practice of carnival, uh, either through the, the temporary elevation of a carnival king or a fool king, uh, or even uh, actual, you know, acts of mock regicide of this carnival king. So there's the uh, the Patris uh, Carnival in Greece, and that actually culminates in the burning of the carnival king, not the individual, but like an, an effigy of the carnival carnival king. Yeah. He's burned. 
I wonder, you know, this sounds kind of dangerous, so uh, I wouldn't really recommend people do this, but I wonder if political tensions could be eased if people just did uh, effigy burnings and stuff. Yeah. Uh, You know, people, uh, no matter which party's in office, you know, people hate the president of the opposing party. They're just, oh, he's everything that's terrible. Is it? I don't know. If if they were to burn effigies of that president, would that 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 sounds very inflammatory and offensive? But uh, would that make things worse? Would that stoke angers? Would that encourage violence, or would it alleviate it? Would it sort of scratch this itch without people actually having to hurt anybody? Well, I think it could scratch the itch because the thing is, like the idea. Uh, of it, of burning an effigy of, say, a sitting U.S. president in the streets, it's inflammatory. Yeah, uh, you know, literally. I mean, it, it <laughs> certainly conjures to mind the the fear that, like, is this a prelude to real violence? Right. Which you would not want it to be. But the, but the key here is we do not have a cultural space for it to take place. Um, you know, we don't have a safe spot. We don't have a holiday where it is allowed. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what yeah. it is. You need you need a ritual environment in which it is sanctioned. And, mm-hmm. and in that case, it could be done without people having to wonder, like, is this a prelude to real violence? No, it's just part of the ritual. We do it every year. Yeah. So it's, it would be kind of like the U.S. president, say, uh, you know, appearing on TV and saying, hey, normally if you talk about this kind of thing, we're going to come to your house and the Secret Service is going to have a chat with you. Mm-hmm. But this one day of the year. You can burn me an effigy, whatever. I'm going to be on vacation, uh, you know, heavily protected, so yeah. I'm good. I'll be playing Go golf. Yeah. yeah, I'll be playing golf or working at the the ranch, what have you. Hanging out with my confectioners. Yeah, confectioners and concubines. All right, so there you have it. Um, we, we covered a lot of territory here today, but it really, I think it serves to take a real stuff-to-blow-your-mind approach to the topic of human sacrifice, you know, what it means at all levels of society, what it meant in ancient societies, and how the energy of those acts carry on today. Right, and of course today we focus primarily on this ritual regicide example, but there are lots of other aspects of human sacrifice that could probably do with episodes of their own in the future, though we don't want to turn this into the human sacrifice show. Right, but but certainly if there's an area here where you, you think to yourself, I would, I would like to hear a podcast episode in the future that dives more into this, let us know what that is, and we'll see what we can do. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find blogs. You'll find videos. You'll find links out to our social media accounts, such as uh, Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. I believe we're Blow the Mind on Instagram. We're Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tumblr. If any of those uh, those particular social media uh, platforms are your preference, then follow us there. And, hey, wherever you listen to this podcast, if there's a way to give us some feedback, uh, some positive feedback or some stars, uh, you know, a nice rating. Oh, yeah. Uh, please do that because it helps us out. It tends to help out the algorithm for the show, and it's a great way to support what we do here. Yeah. And also, as always, if you want to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or to give us ideas for future episodes, ask any questions or anything else you want to say to the host of this show, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.